This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Service at Ohio University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. I'm your host, Bev Jones. I'm an executive coach, and I write about ways to create a rewarding career. Our topic today is the importance of good decision-making and the processes and values that help define the way leaders decide things. Our guest is Aaron Mitchell-Feingold. He is the Chief Marketing Officer at Kingsley Gate, which is a global executive search firm. Before joining them, Aaron spent three years as a senior leader at LinkedIn, and before that, he was an associate partner in McKinsey & Company. Aaron's career has taken him across the globe. He's worked in Latin America, Asia, Europe, and North America. And along the way, he's worked with NGOs as well as corporations. Today, Aaron will tell us about an interesting new study from Kingsley Gate. It focuses on the importance of good decision-making and on the reason why organizations should focus more directly on their processes for deciding things. He'll also offer suggestions about how people and organizations can learn to be better at making important decisions. Aaron, thank you so much for being here today. I always have been so interested in um, decision-making, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So I uh, really appreciate your joining us. Of course, Beverly, it's my pleasure. I'm so thrilled to be here and to have this conversation with you today. Well, we always um, like to start our conversations to learn a little bit about our guests' backgrounds and how they got here. And I I hear from uh, listeners that that's, for many people, the favorite part, to find people who've done just such interesting things. And my sense is that your career has taken you around the world, and you've had some really kind of big-time jobs in marketing and um, other uh, parts of uh, corporate life. Could you tell us your story a bit? Um, How did you... Uh, get interested in marketing and media and and how what was the path that brought you to where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to share. I think I am perhaps a little bit unique in the sense that I knew what I wanted to do uh, upon graduating college when I was a senior in high school. Uh, I think wow. usually when I tell people that, yeah, usually when I tell people that, they say, <laughs> oh, that's, that's not my experience. Um, yes. Many people, for example, they wanted to be physicians uh, when they were in high school and then throughout the course of their university studies decided to uh, take another path, for example. That's one archetype. Um, but for me, what I was really solving for was I wanted to find myself in a career that allowed me to touch on four uh, interests the first one being human behavior, psychology. Th- this was really, um, it, it guided my academic focus in college. And it also was something that I just wanted to be a core part of whatever I was doing um, professionally. So that, that idea of behavior, attitudes, beliefs, emotions, that was really important, number one. Number two was 
creativity and creative expression, whether that be through graphics and design, through video, through language, words, copywriting, having that element be present, even if I wasn't necessarily in charge of producing a creative deliverable, uh, being adjacent to that was really important. Number three was this idea of business. I was just interested in general in how does an organization operate and think about things like growth, like profitability, like shareholder value. Uh, I thought that domain was really interesting. And then lastly, which is not really a peer of the first three, it's kind of more of an overarching theme, is I just wanted to be in a setting that was global. That was really important to me. I had always been interested in other national cultures, understanding the ways in which organizations and business uh, operate across different borders was just a priority of mine. So with those four interests, if you will, um, in mind, I realized at the end of high school that I actually foresaw a career in, as you said, marketing and media, in particular, starting out at an ad agency where I could not only one, learn kind of best practices and learn from those who were advising the biggest brands on how to do marketing, but also see multiple different clients simultaneously. That's one of the benefits of client service uh, versus taking a job, for example, at a corporation is that in one year you get to see how automotive, spirits, hair care, and banking uh, do things. Um, and that was really exciting to me. So that is a uh, long-winded answer to the very beginning of my journey, which was in in high school when I figured yeah. out that that was what I wanted to do. It, it guided a lot of the decisions I made during college and then afterward. And essentially, this, the story post-graduation was after spending three years in the agency, I realized that there are a lot more business problems out there than just marketing communications. So by spending seven years at McKinsey, I was able to get exposed to great thinking in risk management, in operations, in product excellence, in customer experience, in many of those other domains that are very related to uh, and often influence marketing communications, but outside of marketing communications per se. And that was actually really useful in the sense that I broadened my aperture and really understood the interactions between different business functions. Uh, following that, I spent three years at LinkedIn, which was really amazing. It was the first time I had ever been at a company founded after the year 2000, um, where there had been no quote unquote digital team. Uh, it's funny, people would remark actually at LinkedIn that there used to be a mobile team. And then at a certain point in time, that didn't make sense anymore because everything was mobile. Uh, but this was an organization that had never had a quote unquote digital arm or digital specialty because they had been digital from day one. And, and learning that and being exposed to the product management discipline there was really, really edifying. And then in October of 2022, I made the switch almost a year ago. I made the switch to take the chief marketing officer role at Kingsley Gate. Well, you make an important point here, um, although you weren't explicit about it, but it, I found it really interesting. And that is that somebody like you, who was unusually focused, yeah, it, it felt like you really 
had a range of things you're interested in you and you identified a great path but what you found is that even for a, a focused person careers are not linear and by having that experience particularly at McKinsey where you learn so many different things it enriched your ability to focus on the things you want is that right that by you're better at marketing because you understand all the pieces that are make up the whole puzzle yes i couldn't agree more i i think that it's easy to tell career stories in a way that appears linear because it's how our brains organize information it's often more efficient uh sometimes it's even more attractive or appealing but the truth is exactly as you say uh the things i ended up actually doing are quite quite distinct from whatever plan i would have potentially mapped out two decades ago and those experiences that took me away from the things i thought i was meant to do or or planning to do uh those were some of the most enriching because they really highlighted new opportunities for learning and development both capability learning as well as content or knowledge learning that I would have never anticipated before and that have now in hindsight really served a huge benefit um and that's the beauty of serendipity is you never know where your career is going to take you and you never know how experiences you gather even if some of those experiences are challenging at the time because you're thrown into solving a problem that's so foreign to you in terms of con you know, kind of content familiarity um sometimes you know those experiences are the ones that end up being the most useful later on i i think lots of times it's the things that happen on the side that helps to make us who we are when um i'm looking well i will tell you in case you don't know that in my day job these days is being as an executive coach so i work with lots of professionals and leaders and so forth and when i'm trying to get a sense of them at the very beginning so we can get a fast start i always like to get a feel not just for uh where they're working but what do they do with the rest of their life do they have hobbies do they have interests do they travel and and one thing i find often very interesting is um nonprofit act- activities what kind of work are they willing to do when they're not being paid uh because they um that it is a way to really get to know uh where people are doing their learning. So when I I was looking at um your bio, we haven't met, but I always, you know, try to find out as much as I can. One of the things I found intriguing is that you are amazingly global. And another one is there references to some nonprofit work and you just seemed like a a person who although being very focused on what you do is not linear. So would you tell us a little bit about um maybe your nonprofit activity or what are the other things that you do that help to to make you kind of the creative person that you are? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I have been involved in uh some form of nonprofit or NGO leadership for many years. Currently, I am occupying two positions. So I am on the board of a religious organization here in San Francisco where I live, and that helps me feel very rooted and connected to the community in a physical proximity sense. And then I am also a member 
of the uh, executive committee of the San Francisco chapter of a global organization, Human Rights Watch, which allows me to feel connected to not only what's happening locally, but also issues and topics around the world, including in countries and jurisdictions that I will admit I had very little familiarity with prior to engaging in this work with Human Rights Watch. So I feel very lucky to be able to have the time and space to balance between the two. And I also feel like I am deeply enriched. I get great learnings and great rewards from the work with both. So it feels like your activity with these organizations, the learning, the experience, it kind of flows into your day job because you're making observations and connections and noticing. And that is part of your job as as a guru of um, international marketing, right? I think in 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 more ways than one, uh, the statement that you just made is true. Uh, first, executive search is inherently a people business, and I think that anything that anyone can do who's working in or around executive search to better understand the human condition, better understand how to be an empathetic leader, better understand motivations. And as we will talk about in a moment, motivations in their relationship to decisions, I think that's extremely useful. And then also, as you said, as a marketer, I do feel, especially since Kingsley Gate is operating across over 33 countries, it is really important to maintain a global perspective. One of the things that even drew me to this role about a year ago was the fact that this organization, despite its size being relatively small, at least, again, relative to my experience at larger enterprises, uh, its commitment to truly being global and truly putting into practice that global mindset versus being an organization like so many others who may have offices abroad, but whose mindset really is quite US-centric, which not to denigrate them, there are pros and cons to all sorts of different operating models. But uh, for me personally, I found uh, that being in a, an, env- an environment where perspectives and priorities from many different countries were all equal um, and all given equal airtime and importance was, some, was a place that I wanted to work in. I um, have been intrigued by Kingsley Gate. You're not our first guest from there. And what um, I found so impressive when I was kind of learning about it the first time is that this is an organization that on the one hand is very data-driven. They really want to know the facts and what makes things work, and they do research. But at the same time, looking at the things that they've written and the people um, who are there – there are words used like compassion. There's there's an understanding that 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 people are human beings and that leaders um, are shaped in part by their values. So it, I like that dichotomy between the very uh, data driven thing and then the other kind of awareness of what makes um, 
good leaders and, and good executives. So that brings us to the study. The, the latest study is um, an interesting one about decision-making, and decision-making is something I know you guys look at a lot. Um, you've um, looked at, well, why don't I just ask you, tell us about what this research does. What, what does it focus on? What, what are the big takeaways from the study? Absolutely. I think when we went into the research, we had two hypotheses that we were really eager to test. The first hypothesis really centers on the way in which decision effectiveness can benefit executives. And so what we really wanted to understand was essentially, are executives happier, more successful, more productive in environments that demonstrate decision effectiveness? And if so, to what extent? And then also, what's the reverse story? What's the cost of not having decision effectiveness? And we landed on some really interesting findings there. The other hypothesis was kind of perpendicular, if you will, to that thought, which asked, what is the effect of executives on decision effectiveness? And what we wanted to know there was, is bringing in a new executive, for example, into the C-suite, a meaningful way to get a company out of whatever rut it's stuck in when it comes to decision-making? And the answers that we found were directionally things that we had expected, but the extent to which these were really proven out to be true in the survey was surprising and enlightening. So just briefly on the first dimension, we learned that yes, essentially, executives are happier and more productive in environments where decisions are being made well. But what we learned that was really interesting is that 63% of executives actually at one point or another in their career have either re resigned from or considered resigning from a post because of their frustration with how decisions were made. And the number who actually resigned is greater than the number who considered it. The number who actually resigned is 34%. The number who considered is 29. That was really remarkable because in almost every other aspect of life that I can think of, the number of people who consider doing something, e.g. skydiving, uh, e.g. scuba diving, uh, e.g. parasailing, uh, is always going to be greater than the number of people who've yeah. actually done it. But in this case, it actually was the reverse. And we found that really astounding. If I were a CEO, for example, running a company, managing executives as my direct team, I'd be really worried by that stat. I'd be really worried that 30% of the executives out there in the world have at one point or another resigned from a job that actually effectuated their resignation because of frustration with decision-making. So what's the difference between effective decision-making and decision-making that isn't effective? Uh, the processes are part of it, I know, but what? how would you describe what good decision-making looks like as opposed to decision-making that it's going to drive leaders away? 
It's a great question. And actually, I know that you have an interest in not only what the implications of these findings are for executives in the C-suite, but also for aspiring leaders. Uh, Absolutely. And and for uh, mid-level managers, VPs, directors. And so there is a great article from Harvard Business Review um, from the magazine in 2006 called Who Has the D? How Clear Decision Roles Enhance Organizational Performance by Paul Rogers and Marsha W. Blanco. And I just want to read this one uh, sentence from it. They write, even though each business had its own market dynamics, operating requirements, and research focus. So this is talking about business units in a larger company. Uh Uh, They say most important decisions were pushed up to one group of senior executives. Quote, we were generalists across all issues, said Joseph M. Mahadi, president of North American and Global Businesses. It was a signal that we weren't getting our best decision making. I think that that is really relevant, this idea that at so many organizations, it ends up being the C-suite's job to make decisions that they really shouldn't be making. Not only one, because of their own mental bandwidth and set of responsibilities, but also because they don't necessarily have the information, the proximity to the analysis, the understanding of the day-to-day dynamics on the ground that... Other leaders, as I said before, VPs, directors, senior managers might have that may result in a different decision. So I think that location or altitude in the organization is one, it's just one, but it's one important facet of your, to your answer your question of effective decision making. So where the decision make, is made um, really matters, but also how decisions are made by an individual and maybe how conscious people are of how they're making decisions. I I know somewhere in there you you talk a bit about the difference between a gut level decision and a a data-driven decision and how culture will impact what path you choose and how there's room for both. It feels like, can you, can you tell us about the difference between the gut decision and the, and the data decision and how that the best balance seems to vary from culture to culture? Absolutely. Before I go into that, I just want to make one comment because you talked about this idea of consciousness. And I do think that one of the things I've observed over the years is that at some organizations, decisions are being made without the relevant actors even realizing that that's what they're doing. Uh, They just go about their normal life and they end up making pretty significant consequential decisions, but they never framed it in that way. They never framed it as this decision of what market to enter, what product to launch, what, what company to buy. This is a really crucial decision for us Here's where it sits in the priority list. Here's why it's time sensitive. Here's why getting it right really matters. That kind of internal language uh, and framing is really important. And it's also why I believe one of the findings from the study materialized that told us that a quarter of the time, decision-making isn't even brought up at all during an interview process for a new senior executive. Uh, And I think that it's because we tend to lose track of or we tend to 
lose consciousness of the fact that we're doing decision-making in addition to all of the other day-to-day responsibilities. Aaron, that is such an important point. And I'll say as a coach, sometimes I have the opportunity to get a close look at somebody who's pretty high up, maybe close to the top of an organization, and then other people who are at a lower level. And I sometimes I see the lower level people really unhappy about a decision. And I happen to know that the upper level people don't even know they made a decision. If to them, it's, you know, they just, they've made some kind of assumption and it seems, sounds like an order to people elsewhere. So what you're saying is that before you talk about uh, gut versus data, or whatever. The first thing is is to notice where decisions are effectively being made and recognize them as decisions and make a choice about where they should may be made. Is that right? Yes, it's such a crucial point because I think a lot of organizations want to improve their decision effectiveness, but often they don't know where to start. And my personal perspective would be start at this place of mapping out what are those decisions over the next six months that need to be made? Why did those rise to the top? And are we going to be really intentional about how we make those decisions? Whether it is leaning more on gut instinct or on a set of analyses, personally, I'm very indifferent. I think different situations call for different emphasis or different uh, volume um, of input or different methods. But I think that just being aware that these are the most important decisions for either an individual or a team or a company to make is a really important starting point that so many miss out on. Very often, there's a lot of focus on the, I don't want to call it the minutia of the process, but the mechanics, if you will, of the process. Yeah. Um, how does the analysis get done? Who performs it? How does that then get surfaced to the right people? Sometimes that discussion is happening without even having alignment on what decision needs to be made. Meaning if you were to ask three different people in the process, they would describe it differently. Or to your point, they wouldn't even know that it really was a decision. They wouldn't know that maybe it's two separate decisions, right? Whether to do this, yes or no, which is binary, and then how, which is on a spectrum. And so those types of conversations, I think, can really help elucidate and align uh, organizations toward decision effectiveness. So it sounds like for people who are kind of junior, one of the things that might be helpful is to ask about decisions, to ask whether a decision is going to be made somewhere else or whether it's within their purview. Lots of times people might have the power to make decision, but nobody even knows a decision has to be made. So by framing the question and having um, and, and getting clarification, that process can be smoothed a bit. Absolutely. I view it as a junior team member's right, if not obligation, to raise that question because in a case where the senior executive, upon hearing that question, says, oh, you triggered a thought that I wasn't previously having, which is a thought around what the decision is, what the options are, why this decision matters. That can add tremendous value for the business. And all it takes is the simple asking of the question. And further, to your point, the answer may sometimes be 
Well, it's a decision that clearly needs to be made, but sometimes the more junior person, as I said before, has that proximity or that knowledge, that familiarity with the market or the customer or the business operations that really equips that person to, at the very least, provide really meaningful input, if not in some cases also make the decision. One of the things that organizations, I think, have to really confront when they move decisions, quote unquote, down the hierarchy is the question of whether or not they have the courage and the trust to do so. And successful organizations do. All right, I'm changing gears a little bit. And I have a a question kind of about global operations. So it does feel as though decision-making does vary between cultures. But when you have an organization that goes across many countries, does it make it, do you have to be more explicit or how do you manage uh, different systems or processes in different countries when you have similar decisions to be made in one place or another? Do you have any thoughts on that? First of all, am I right that there are big differences among cultures? Uh, I think that you are right that there are different expectations around Ah, how people behave, obviously cultural norms, and those norms in the workplace can sometimes be heightened. Uh, So yes, that for sure is true. But I would also argue that one thing that's universal is that decisions usually benefit from an influx of different perspectives because only then can whoever's really accountable for making that decision understand the pros and cons from different lenses. One of the things that I alluded to earlier is that our research sought to understand what effect executives might have on decision-making effectiveness. And one of the things we found that was really fascinating is that actually this idea of new hires bringing new energy, new perspective into the organization was a more effective lever at pushing an organization to improvement than things like improved data governance, better processes, new technology. That was actually surprising to us. We didn't think that those people-centric levers were going to be as powerful as things like data and process, but in fact, they actually were more so. And so when it comes to your question about operating in a global sphere, one of the things that can be really important in decision-making is understanding the way that affected parties or people with a perspective from different geographies might look at the decision, not only at weighing the specific pros and cons, but back to our conversation from earlier, even how the decision is framed even where it falls in priority rank among other decisions, even understanding the stakes of the decision can be informed by gathering perspectives from colleagues or peers in different countries. And that can be very enlightening if the company wants to perform well across different markets. So I think that's a great point to end on. I just realized we're just about out of time, but I I think that it's, it's another reflection of how diversity can lead to better decisions. If you explicitly look at the decision-making process and then have lots of views and perspectives, you're going to find, um, in many cases, better solutions to the problems you might be talking about. Is that right? 
Absolutely. I think my caution there would be two things. First of all, one, if the process isn't structured, this gathering of opinions can become a bit unwieldy. It can yeah. feel chaotic. And so what's important, I think, in my opinion, to do is to say we have a, an allotted time for gathering perspectives, and then we close that. And then we analyze what we have, and then we move forward. So that's part one. That's caution number one, um, is kind of order versus chaos. And then caution number two is also letting people know that just because they've provided input doesn't mean that the ultimate decision that's going to be taken that's deemed best for the business is going to be in line with what they would have wanted or what their input would have suggested. Yeah. Because everybody can highlight different pros and cons, but what it takes then is an accountable party or a team to look at all of that information and say, anything that we could do has risks. Anything that we could do has a downside. But we've decided that in this case, quote, the juice is worth the squeeze and we're going to move forward. And I think that those expectations being outlined explicitly at the beginning really help people feel like they're participating in a process, even if the eventual outcome perhaps is a bit different from what they would have expected or wanted. I think that is excellent advice. And I appreciate um, your comments. It gives us uh, something to aspire to, I suspect. Uh, if we're struggling with decisions in our organizations. Well, thank you so much, Aaron, for joining us. Um, the study, let me just mention, uh, the study is available to the public. I just downloaded it from Kingsley Gate, and I'll put the site uh, in our news notes. Uh, is there anything else people should know about how to get information about Kingsley Gate? No, I think uh, downloading the study from our website that we published in conjunction with FT Longitude from the Financial Times Group is a great way to learn more. Thank you so much. Today we've been talking with Aaron Feingold, the Chief Marketing Officer at global executive search firm Kingsley Gate. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Find Your Happy at Work. And our sponsor is the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Service at Ohio University. Today's tip is that if you want to make better decisions, spend some time noticing how you go about deciding things and what it looks like when you do make a great choice. Thanks for listening to Jazzed About Work, and if you like the show, please tell all your friends about us. 